This is an ABC podcast. Is it ever okay for an unpaid landlord to seize a tenant's property? Find out what a Victorian judge had to say shortly. Hello, I'm Damien Carrick. This is The Law Report on RN and available, of course, as a podcast. Next week, the Geneva Conventions are turning 70. The laws of war are designed to protect civilians and to place some limits on what combatants can do to each other. But in horrific conflicts like Syria and Yemen, the Geneva Conventions appear to be largely ignored. So, 70 years on, how much is there to celebrate? How relevant are they? It is our duty to establish conventions for the protection of victims of war. Our recognition of this duty in no way prevents us from earnestly hoping that the nations of the world may be freed once and for all from the shadow of war. The hopeful words of Swiss Federal Councillor Max Petitpierre announcing the adoption of the landmark Geneva Conventions in August 1949, exactly 70 years ago next Monday. Well, despite the lofty words, wars still rage and civilians still die. I think we've got a couple of options. I liked uh, Eleanor Roosevelt's statement, you can curse the darkness or you can light a candle. It's heartbreaking. Every day one has to lean in very heavily to make sure that these uh, these precious laws that do save some lives and are worth uh, pushing for. But um, it, is, it is a complex time in human history, uh, especially when we know the horrors that are going on. Australian lawyer Helen Durham is Director of International Law and Policy with the International Committee of the Red Cross. She somehow maintains her optimism in the face of gross violations of the four Geneva Conventions, laws designed to protect wounded combatants, prisoners of war and civilians. Absolutely, and what we see in places like Syria, but also let's not forget uh, other conflicts across the world. There's a lot of attention in the Middle East, but we also, as an organisation, work in Mali, work in South Sudan, work in many other conflicts. So across the world, every day, it's heartbreaking how the laws of war are broken. In places like Yemen, you see attacks on hospitals. In places like Syria, you see civilians being uh, targeted or, or part of very heavy collateral damage. But I think it's too simple and too, I think, um, damaging for protection of civilians to actually say they're not ever followed or to really have a negative discourse that, in fact, because we see all the information when they're not followed, that they're not useful frameworks. I suppose working for the International Committee of Red Cross and having hundreds of lawyers and military experts globally working on the ground, we see every day when they're actually uh, are followed. Uh, it's just that good news often isn't really uh, a thing that's promoted as much as the horrific suffering. Well, Helen, what is the good news? Because when you see the the you know the bombing of Idlib on our uh, TV screens, you throw your arms up in utter dismay. You're telling me there's also good news amongst the bad. What what is it in terms of compliance with the Geneva Conventions? Well, I think what you see with the Geneva Conventions is the small breakthrough. The uh, times my colleagues are able to operate on people, the humanitarian access that's available. So the news overall is terrible and it's unacceptable. And I think certainly in a, a conflict that we're seeing today, conflicts are more protracted uh, compared to many years ago. So that, of course, has a huge impact on civilian infrastructure. But if I look at the fact that over a million individuals who were detained were visited globally by the International Committee of Red Cross, that's 
against the laws of war in action. If I see that in Syria, a place like Syria, almost 6 million people are provided with uh, fresh water. We only get to do that because there's a legal framework that requires that. So amongst all the horror, it's not so much good news, it's just that there are small and very valuable for the individuals, and I've spent time in Iraq and other war zones, there are activities that actually make a difference. And I think what we really need to do is move our outrage and our sense of um, loss of humanity away from sort of purely into the anger and actually look at practical things and ways we can increase uh, the limitation of suffering during times of armed conflict. But you're absolutely right, Damien. I mean, what we witness today, and we all have too much information, is totally unacceptable. Obviously, you, you travel to a lot of these war zones. Can you maybe tell us about what you have seen where you think the Geneva Conventions have made a difference and maybe a breach as well that uh, has affected you? Certainly in some of my in some of my travels in, in certain conflict zones, to just help a family member who has not not aware in a war conflict where perhaps their father or their brother is and to help them with a, one of the satellite phones of the ICRC connect up with my colleagues who are visiting people who are detained. You do see the small, almost small miracle of giving someone in this horrific environment the sense of knowing where their loved one is. And I know last year my colleagues, I think, did over 40,000 phone calls. And when I've been involved in those when I've been in conflict environments to see that I remember the face of one woman and just it was unbelievable the relief and the um I suppose the humanity the small pocket of humanity that was given to her in this horrible refugee camp just outside the the border of, of where the fighting was going on I think the breaches that certainly distress all of us in the ICRC a lot is the uh, attacks of hospitals. When you see in whether it be Yemen or, or many of these other countries, you actually walk through, and I've walked through hospitals in, in countries where you've seen the destruction, and you know it's not just the immediate suffering, but it's the long-term consequences of how many thousands of people are going to suffer because of the destruction of this hospital. So they're two things that really hit me personally as I'm engaged in my work and give me sometimes, I suppose, the energy to go to New York and talk to the Security Council about these matters and to not just urge but to demand that these laws that will save lives that are very pragmatic actually are entered into force and, and, and are used. I take it you, you're not prepared to point the finger, say, in the, the Syria or the Yemen conflicts about who are the most egregious abusers of the Geneva Conventions. But, uh, you know, the Syrian government has a terrible record. ISIS, obviously a, a, a terrible, terrible organisation. Some rebel groups seem to comply to some degree. What do you do in that kind of landscape where there are terrible actors all over, everywhere? Yeah, and thanks for the understanding. I mean, indeed, our requirement to be neutral, and I have, as we've got hundreds of colleagues in these war zones as we speak. So it does not mean we don't have extremely robust discussions bilaterally. And I think you're right. One of the issues we're seeing today is the proliferation of what we call non-state armed groups. So I think our statistics indicate in the last six years, there's more non-state armed groups than the last 60 years. So it is a complex way we have to engage with these groups. 
for um, us to get access and to do our work and to talk about the laws of war, we need to have some degree of trust with many of these groups that are very, very complex and are very, very dangerous. But I think one thing that is really important is that a lot of attention goes to non-state armed groups, groups people call terrorist groups and others, but states globally still have an enormous amount of power and behind the scenes play strong roles in transferring weapons and training and engaging. So we're also having to turn to big, powerful states across the world to ask them and require them to live up to their obligations under the laws of war in how they engage with these non-state armed groups. So it's fairly layered and, and it's fairly um, complex, but one really has to try and be both rigorous but also creative. Does the ICRC ever point the finger at uh, some of these state actors? Our, our job isn't, and as we're guardians of the Geneva Conventions, our job isn't to point the finger. Um, our job is to, behind the scenes, put a lot of pressure on states themselves, remind them of their obligations, come up with practical solutions. But there are many fantastic groups that are out there pointing fingers left, right and centre, which is uh, really important and complementary to our work, but they often don't have the security concerns we have. The, the, the ICRC itself, your workers, can be the victims of breaches of, of the Geneva Conventions. We've seen a number of people, I think, kidnapped in Syria. We saw, I think, last year somebody killed in Yemen. At that point, you actually had to pull out all your workers from Yemen. I'm not sure if you're back in Yemen again. You guys are on the front line. You experience these breaches yourselves. That's correct. And, I mean, it's horrible. And if I can say for a moment, as a as an Aussie woman in Geneva uh, who travels a lot globally on this but spends a lot of time here, to walk up the hill, uh, which I do to work up to work, and to see our Red Cross flags at half-mast so regularly with the execution of colleagues, with the kidnapping of colleagues, it's really heartbreaking. But, yes, I think the um, treatment of humanitarian workers globally is, is unacceptable. What is what is quite interesting is the numbers vary only in a small way. It's the type of attacks. It's the kidnapping and those issues. And often in a conflict zone, as you could imagine, Damien, there's a mixture of criminal elements as well as the non-state armed groups. And often for us to understand what really happened, um, it's quite complex. We have to send in our networkers to go and talk to all the different individuals or the chiefs in charge of different non-state armed groups to really have an understanding. Was that a message being sent to the Red Cross or was that an opportunistic uh, issue? So the whole uh, area of the protection of humanitarian workers is a hard one for us. I know it's one of the areas that I would suppose keeps me awake at night as most, as well as other issues about new technologies and weapons and what the future might hold, but certainly making sure that our workers are safe. Technology, of course, is, is transforming all aspects of life, including war. What, what challenges do new technologies pose for the industry of killing and I guess for the Geneva Conventions? You know, marking the 70th anniversary, we've got to look at um, where we've we've done well, where we're not doing so well with these treaties or where we need to sort of really face the dilemmas, if I can put that way. New technologies are a really interesting thing. There's so many benefits of new technologies and particularly, and even in the humanitarian sector, new technologies can do marvellous things. But if we look at an issue from a legal and technical point of view, such as cyber warfare, um, there's some real challenges that we, we are confident we'll be able to find ways around, but it's making us uh, have to work very hard and, and particularly engage with the tech industry and with uh, often 
companies that are engaged in new technology in a way that we as an institution, the ICRC, we have a proud history of engaging with states, but it's fascinating to look at lawmaking or discussions about laws with companies as well. So cyber warfare, for example, when one of the basic principles of the laws of war is distinction, you must distinguish between civilians and combatants, which is what we push very hard with the non-setarm groups and the Syrian military itself in places like Syria, and obviously doesn't always work at all, but um, the principle and, and at times when it does, it saves lives. When you've got something like cyber and you've got the interconnection connectedness between, say, take a GPS system developed for the military. It's quite complex to look at how you can have the principle of distinction when there's such an interconnectedness in cyber warfare. So we're working on that. Um, Autonomous weapons and artificial intelligence. The laws of war were made for humans to apply decisions. And how comfortable are we globally with this idea of killing through algorithms, targeting through algorithms? So what roles should humans play in decision-making in killing, if I put it bluntly, in future wars. So what is fascinating is to try to weigh up how do we work harder and For example, I know in the next couple of weeks, my team are going to talk to the Syrian government about the laws of war and put more of IHL into the doctrine, not just the non-state armed groups. How do we deal with the current situation, but also think to the future? What will the future wars look like so we can prepare ourselves for that? Australian lawyer Helen Durham, Director of International Law and Policy with the International Committee of the Red Cross. I'm Damien Carrick and you're listening to The Law Report on RN or wherever you get your podcasts. If you rent out a commercial property and your tenant stops paying rent, what are your options? Of course, you can terminate the lease and re-enter the property. But can you seize your tenant's goods as a way of pressuring them to pay the rent they owe. That was the question before the Victorian County Court in the recent case of Katranis and Dezena. Now, this conflict raises a lot of fundamental issues about what is and isn't fair and also how unrepresented litigants navigate our courts and tribunals. Lawyer Catherine Ballantyne is a business dispute specialist with Madrix Lawyers. She wasn't involved in this case, but she has seen many similar legal stouches. Well, in this case, you have Bruno Dezena, who is the landlord. Now, he's an elderly man. He's in his 80s. His health is not well, and he also has poor English. And the other party then is the tenant, Anthony Katranis, He operates a car repair business. So basically his business is he repairs cars and then he on-sells them for a profit. Anthony Katranis enters into a rental agreement with Bruno Dezena. It's over sort of this premises in Thomastown, which is a a suburb in northern Melbourne, from Bruno Dezena. They enter into the contract in the rental agreement in about 2014 and then in about November he stops paying rent in 2016, and by November 2016, he owes Bruno Dezena about 7420 bucks. So what does Mr Dezena do, the landlord do? Mr Dezena, he decides that he's going to lock the tenant out of the premises, but the problem is the tenant's goods and equipment are still in the premises. So he's locked him out and said, I'm not going to let you back in until you pay the outstanding rent. 
So he owes him 7000 bucks. What is the value of the property? We're talking here about tools and equipment and, and cars in various uh, states of repair. What's the value of So the values books? are in excess of $100,000. I mean, very disproportionate to the amount of rent owed. And of course, the rent wasn't paid. What happens at that point? At that point, the tenant, Mr Katranis, he decides to go to VCAT to get an the, order. Which is the Victorian Civil and Administrative Tribunal. Yep. Correct. And he goes to VCAT to get an order that his goods be returned or that he has access to the property for the purpose of getting his goods, regardless of whether he pays the rent or not. And he gets that order from VCAT. So there's now a tribunal order saying... Unlock the doors, let this man take his goods away. What does Mr Desena do at that point? Well, he refuses access. He says, I don't care about your VCAT order. I'm not giving you access until you pay the outstanding rent. I'm keeping the doors locked. So essentially the tenant brings a case in the county court. So this goes before the, the county court in Melbourne. Now, you mentioned at the beginning that Bruno Dezena is, I think he's 83 years old. He actually speaks through an interpreter, right, at this court case? That's correct. And in fact, the judge in his judgment, which is quite rare, and I haven't seen it happen often, thanked the interpreter for their work in the court case because... The judge said the interpreter not only had to interpret, but he had to often comfort Mr Dezena and also try and put his case to the court. So it was a, a difficult role that the interpreter had to play. So this elderly gentleman is described as quite prone to frequent intemperate outbursts and, 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 of quite, and he often shouts. The judge says he's not suffering from any kind of impairment. He's intelligent, but he's simply not listening to anything that wouldn't reinforce his single-minded view of the issues. That's the way the judge describes it. That's right. And it's difficult for a judge in this position to firstly maintain order in the courtroom, but to give everybody a fair trial and let everyone have a fair hearing. And judges, when there's, I've been many times against self-represented litigants, and the judges aren't allowed to give them legal advice, but they do try to guide them to stay on track because often, quite unbeknownst to the self-represented litigant, they're focusing on things that aren't actually relevant. But without also giving the impression to either party that they're favouring either party, it's actually a very difficult position the court finds itself in and unusual than when both parties are represented. Anthony Katranis does have a lawyer. What does the judge decide? Ultimately, the judge finds in favour of Anthony Katranis. Ultimately, he basically, he, he does evaluation, which was a difficult process of what the goods were back in 2016 when the VCAT order wasn't complied with. So he does evaluation process and there's two experts there. So he has to weigh their evidence. And essentially he says to Bruno Dezana, to the landlord, you have to pay about 101000 less the rent owing, which was 7500 plus interest of just over $20,000. Because remember, he's had these goods locked up for, you know, from 2016 to 2019. So plus interest and costs. So all in all, that amounts to, one can imagine, about $150,000 to $200,000, which is a huge amount, given that this started over a $7,500 rental dispute. This is a disaster for the landlord, Bruno Dezena, isn't it? Absolutely, an absolute disaster. And you can sort of have sympathy for the landlord in a way. He would have thought originally, look, 
I've got this rent owing. It doesn't look likely that I'm ever going to be paid. So what can I do? Well, he's left his goods in the premises. I'm just going to lock them up and sort of hold them hostage, so to speak, until I'm paid. And you can have some sympathy for that view. But once a VCAT order came down and ignored the VCAT order, that's really when his difficulty started and when the costs started to mount against him. So if he just complied with the court order... He would have still been probably 7000 bucks out of pocket, but he could have pursued that in other ways. If he'd just complied with that order, there would have been no further cost to him. That's correct, because VCAT is usually a be-your-own-cost jurisdiction. Not all the time, but generally costs aren't awarded in VCAT. So what's the take-home message here, Catherine Ballantyne? I mean, the law is clear. You cannot seize the property of your tenant even if they owe you a back rent? Well, firstly, make sure your lease is drafted correctly from the start because had the lease actually said once the lease is terminated that the tenant abandons any goods they leave there, this wouldn't have been an issue. And that's not an uncommon clause that comes up in leases. But it's abandoned the same as, as being locked out? Well, it really depends on the terms of the lease. So you want your lease to actually contemplate this situation. If rent isn't paid and the locks are changed, what happens to the goods that are inside? Was it contemplated in this lease? Well, this one is a very interesting case because neither party produced the lease to the court, which is extremely rare. So the court had to surmise what the terms were. And given neither party was sort of relying on a term in the lease to that effect, the court had to assume there was no term to that effect in the lease. Okay, take-home messages always have a written lease which contemplates as many possible scenarios as might eventuate and also always comply with the court order. Absolutely, otherwise you can find yourself in a lot more trouble and have a lot bigger consequences in monetary terms than you've ever contemplated. I'm wondering, Catherine Ballantyne, I mean, do your clients ever sort of call you up and say, this is my issue, Um, I've got all this back rent owing to me, can I do this? I mean, is this a common scenario? Yeah, this happens from time to time. I must admit, it's rare for it to get to the County Court or the Supreme Court. Usually it stops at VCAT and generally people do comply with the VCAT orders or they appeal the VCAT orders. But look, it does happen from time to time and landlords are frustrated. And you can understand why they're frustrated if they have rent owing to them. And poor Mr Bruno Dezena thinks, hey, I'm owed money, right? I mean, to him, I think that's a very, it's a very kind of simple, straightforward proposition. I'm owed money. I'm out of pocket. I want it. And then I'll give you what has been left on my premises. That's exactly right. And in fact, he even said um, in court, he said, look, you know, had they paid me the rent, and they showed up on the day that specified by the VCAT order, but they had paid the rent, I would have given them a bottle of whiskey and helped them move the, the equipment myself. But in this case, because they hadn't paid the rent, he felt aggrieved and he didn't want to comply with the VCAT order and he really wanted his rent paid, mm-hmm. which is understandable, absolutely. And that comes back to, you know, self-represented litigants are not necessarily, they're going to kind of, more often than not, and it's human nature and, and we all do it, you have a kind of a clear, simple idea of what's going on, but that might not be what the law That's correct. And they also think, well, it's not costing me anything to run this, but they don't necessarily think of A, if they lose, but B, also the costs of the other side, that if they lose, they may um, be forced to pay the costs of the other side. And quite often they don't realise that and that becomes a big problem. And many times they don't have the money, so they end up bankrupt. So it becomes quite a tragic story. Catherine Ballantyne, Business Disputes Specialist, 
with Madgwick's lawyers. The Katranas and Dezena case involved a commercial lease. So what is the law when it comes to residential leases? Leo Patterson is the Senior Policy Officer with the Residential Tenants Union of New South Wales. Can a landlord who re-enters a property seize a tenant's possessions until the back rent is paid? So, no, and, and this was a an old tactic from earlier centuries that has been uh, made illegal in Australia for, for quite a while now. What landlords are allowed to do is either hold the goods inside the property, usually for a, a set amount of time under each state and territory laws, or can move them into storage. But in most states, the storage costs are capped, so it, it may not be in their best interests. And then they have to give the tenant the opportunity to come back and get the goods for a certain time. Once that period is over, and so for instance, for most goods in New South Wales, that's 14 days after you've given tenant the notice that you're storing these goods, um, then you're allowed to start the process of, of getting rid of them, either by throwing them out if they're not worth very much or selling them. Okay, so you can throw them out or sell them and then what, the proceeds from the sale can go to the, the back rent, which is owed, or do you have to give the um, the entire amount raised from the sale to the, the tenant? To the tenant, yeah. So generally, the rent arrears and the goods are treated as separate issues. And so uh, the tenant owes the money for the rent separately to the reclaiming the goods. But they can usually seek direction from the courts or tribunal about what they should do. And, th- and it may be that the court then gives them the ability to, to apply it in that way. So we've got this 14 days where the landlord has to store and then after that sell or dispose of the goods. And presumably that's because, you know, otherwise a landlord can't re-rent the property. And we're talking about bulky items like clothes and, and furniture, which is expensive to store. But what about items like, say, driver's licences, birth certificates, very important items? Or what about things like photo albums, which are also extremely important, but I guess more for emotional reasons? Are there special rules around those kinds of small items, but very important ones? So there are special rules. And increasingly in states, we have been bringing in rules that say that personal documents, and so that's really the driver's licenses and other, you know, identification and official government issued documents, they need to be kept for a longer period. But obviously, because they're smaller, they're also easier to store. But unfortunately, things like photo albums actually aren't protected. They're usually going to be seen as financially not worth very much. And they're not going to fit into the category of a personal document of the type of, an, of a licence or an identification. And so they often just get thrown out very quickly. So, so Leo Patterson, how often do these sorts of disputes come before the, the tribunals? In New South Wales, uh, which is my, my state, about 50 or 60 a year disputes come to the tribunal. Most of those are landlords seeking direction about what they should do with goods left behind. So about a a 75-25 split between landlords seeking direction for what they should do with goods and uh, tenants trying to get their goods back. But the Tenants Advice and Advocacy Services in New South Wales are approached by a couple of hundred people a year tenants seeking uh, help getting their goods back. So there's a lot more issues going on that don't make it to the tribunal. Hopefully they're resolved beforehand. Hopefully, yeah. I think, you know, most people are are pretty sensible and it's in landlords' interests as well as tenants to get the goods out of the place as quickly as possible so we can all move on. So it's, it's only where that process falls apart 
that I think the tribunal needs to step in. Can you tell me about some of those cases which have come before the courts? One that we do refer to quite often is Coldwell and Flynn, where the landlord actually illegally locked out the tenant. They didn't follow the proper process for eviction. They didn't go through the tribunal and then refused to give the tenant access to their goods. There was quite a lot of stuff in there. The tenant was a, a, an IT worker and he had quite a lot of possessions in the place that were worth quite a lot of money. And the tribunal ended up awarding him $7,250 of compensation for those goods that ended up not having been taken care of and the tenant never got them back. Uh, now, that's a lot less than what the tenant asked for because uh, we have to allow for depreciation and for the goods not being brand new, but it's still a significant uh, amount of money. So that's the kind of risk that a landlord can take when they aren't following the proper procedure. Take home message, always follow procedure and always have a proper rental contract. Leo Patterson there, Senior Policy Officer with the Residential Tenants Union of New South Wales. That's the Law Report. Big thanks to producer Anita Barrow and to sound engineer Kerry Dell. I'm Damien Carrick. Talk to you next time with more Law. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listener.